your breaths back. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. <coughs> For any visitors uh, with us, it's my custom to, to preach systematically through um, a particular book of, of the Bible or from time to time. Um, look at a particular theme or, or characters and um, we, we started last March I think it was um, looking through the book of Acts and we're going to continue with that study um, at least for another couple of months I think so let's play, uh, read Acts chapter 11 as we finished off um, in August at Acts chapter 10 the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So reads God's precious word. We're going to continue just now in our praise and worship as we uplift our offering and as I often say this is just part of our weekly worship. Please if you haven't come prepared then uh, just allow the bag to pass you by. But we're going to sing in Christ alone my hope is found. As I said I hope to uh, continue our studies in the book of Acts certainly for um, the next couple of months at least. Um, and it might be good just to give something of a very quick, and I'll try and make it quick, um, recap of kind of where we were when we left it at the end of August. 
we have up to this point, we have witnessed the birth of the church and we have saw how it has grown at a phenomenal rate of how it has been persecuted, that many believers had been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and wherever they went, and this is important, wherever they went, they spoke the message of the gospel. Persecution did not stop the spread of the gospel. It actually helped further it. The church, when we reach where we are now, the early church is now at the stage where it is made up of those not just from a Jewish and Samaritan background, but as we saw last time from chapter 10, from Gentiles. And thousands, thousands, are becoming believers and are joining the church. The apostles who had the responsibility of the oversight of the early church, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem and they had a duty to ensure that such happenings of, of multitudes coming to faith were actually and was of God. However, as you well may imagine, with such a kind of wide and varied company of people all coming together, there was the risk of tension. There was a risk of disputes, and some of which we've looked at in previous studies. And the stage that we are now at as we reach chapter 11 is probably the most crucial. Because as verse 1 tells us, the word of God has now been received by Gentiles. And again, just a very quick reminder that Jews and Gentiles did not mix. The Jews saw them literally as dogs. There was no interaction between them. And as verse 3 makes clear, even to go into the house of a Gentile for a Jew was a no-no. And yet, last time, chapter 10, we saw how Cornelius and others in his household had, had um, called on Peter and Peter had been obedient and Peter went and Peter spoke the gospel to them and, and, and even as Peter was preaching, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit and they were baptized. And Peter stays there a few days, no doubt, to disciple them and to encourage them. And then what we find, and as we move into where we are now, then what we find is that of his own of his own volition, he returns to Jerusalem. He didn't have to. He wasn't called back to Jerusalem. But he returns to Jerusalem in order to explain to, to the other apostles and to the kind of wider church at Jerusalem, if you like, that everything that has been happening, these Gentiles coming to faith and receiving the Holy Spirit, all of that that has been happening is of God. And God is doing a new thing. And God is doing a great thing. And Peter is coming up to Jerusalem to tell them all about this new thing. All about this great thing. 
And I want to share with you three things. I've actually found this in preparation uh, very challenging. Uh, but I want to share with you three things from these verses with, without kind of digging into because we looked at the part with Cornelius. And so I want to pull out three different things under three simple headings. We read of criticizing. We read of a reporting. And we read of a praising. First thing we read of is criticizing. Those of you who know and have been following along will know that Peter's been through a lot. <coughs> Peter's been imprisoned for his faith. Peter's been flogged for his faith. And we saw in chapter 10 that Peter now has had his once proud Jewish culture and beliefs, everything that he stood for, shown in a vision from God that they now are actually not important. Because now there is something that is of far greater importance. And for that, that was tough for Peter. Peter struggled with that. Surely not I, Lord. Peter struggled with that. But as we see, or as we saw last time, and as we'll see again when Peter reports it back, Peter has fully obeyed God's call here. Peter has fully participated in God's work. And because of that, Peter has saw God saving Gentiles and filling them with the Holy Spirit, did just as he did with Peter and the other apostles and the early believers on the day of Pentecost. He must, Peter at this time, he must have been on a spiritual high. Wow! Wow, he must have been thinking. Who would have thought it? Even the Gentiles are now getting saved. I can't wait to get back to my home church and tell them everything that God is doing. He must have been filled with the joy of the Lord. Just as it were, bursting with enthusiasm to tell the mother church all that's happened. So off he sets. Yeah, did you notice verses 2? In verses 3, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. When we read of the circumcised believers, this more than likely refers to a group within the early church who required the circumcision of all Gentile believers or non, all non-Jewish believers before they would be accepted as genuine. You have to do it our way. Something that Paul had to write against in very strong language in Galatians 5. And what we have here is a group of people who may very well have had good intentions, but who, as they saw it, 
believed that their way and their tradition and their custom was right. And I kind of woe betide anybody who does it in a different kind of way. And they criticize Peter. And it is a criticism, friends, like a lot of criticism, in that it is actually based on an ignorance of all the facts. You see, all they saw and all they heard was that their long-held custom and traditions were now being threatened. And rather than taking time and speaking to Peter and asking about it, they just openly criticize him. Peter is involved in a revolutionary step in the unfolding of the formation of the early church. At this point, Peter is, if you like, at the cutting edge of ministry. He's doing a new thing. And that is often, friends, when criticism can be at its strongest. Why are you doing this? That's not the way we do it. We've never done it that way before. This is the way we do it. These new hymns, these old hymns, this thing or that thing, Ensure that you can all think on situations. So I was studying this week, and one of the books that I was reading on it tells the story concerning William Booth. I don't know if you know who, know who William Booth is. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, who, as you well know, went out to those who were living on the streets, to the poor, to, to, to those who were the kind of lepers of the day. He reached out to them with the love of Christ, with the gospel. Well, as he did that, in the very early days, one prominent evangelical politician at the time declared that after much study, he was convinced that the Salvation Army was clearly the Antichrist. Someone else at that time added that in his own studies, and I think own studies is the kind of telling phrase here, that in his own studies he learned that the number of William Booth's name added up to 666. Can you imagine how that must have felt to William Booth as he seeks to do a new thing? As he seeks to reach out to those who need the gospel? Those criticizing him had no idea because they weren't interested. They had no idea that God was doing a new thing. God was doing a great thing. And it would have been so easy for Peter to be, as many have been since, utterly deflated. 
But I think his response, and we'll come to that in a minute, is one that we can all learn from. Because I want to make clear, and I want you to hear this loud and clear, that I am not saying, and I don't believe, that this passage teaches that all criticism is wrong and should never be made. It's not what I'm saying, and that's not what this passage teaches. None of us, and this person in particular, is above criticism. Even Peter, even Peter had to accept rather fierce criticism from another apostle. He had to receive criticism from Paul because he was clearly in the wrong, interestingly, in the same matter regarding Gentiles. And you can read about that in Galatians 2. All I am saying, brothers and sisters, is that when it comes to criticizing, we've got to be very careful that we know all the facts and that we are not doing it out of what might be long-held traditions and customs, that in the light of the advancement of the gospel and the saving of precious souls are nothing but secondary issues. Criticizing. What of Peter's response? Well, I've kind of headed that under reporting because he does come back and he gives a kind of report to, to the home church. I guess that for those of us who kind of know our Bibles and, and know Peter, I guess that um, knowing as we do something of his temperament, he might very well have taken off. I mean, he, he cut one of the soldiers' ears off because they dared to arrest Jesus. He kind of shouted down three times someone and said, yeah, that was you. No, no. But a temper problem. He might very well have stormed off in anger. I'll just go and start my own church. <laughs> However, notice carefully what he does. He takes time. And he takes time to clearly and calmly explain everything to them precisely as it happened. He takes, if you like, the sting out of the criticism by addressing the issue head on with a desire to maintain the unity of the whole church. And that, brothers and sisters, takes grace and it takes patience, but it is what is required. And he tells them, he tells them exactly why he went into this house of this Gentile and of why he ate. You see, in dealing with criticism, honesty, is always the best policy. It's always the best policy. Whether that be the case as here, Peter is actually, to, to, to use a phrase, in the right. It's easier kind of to be calm and assured then. Or even when the criticism is fair, when the criticism is deserved, we just hold our hands up. We say, sorry, I, I got it wrong. Let's move on. You see, Peter has got nothing whatsoever to fear here. 
Because what Peter has done was being obedient to God. And that sometimes can lead to criticism. And he makes that clear that he was being obedient in his reporting. Verses 4 to 10, he tells them of God's vision. This wasn't Peter's idea. The last thing Peter wanted to do was go into a Gentile house. This was God's idea. God gave him a vision, verses 4 to 10. He actually tells him of God's voice telling him what to do. So he wasn't doing it all and off his own back. Verses 11 and 12. And verses 13 and 14. Of how even God had prepared the hearts of Cornelius and all who had gathered. And finally, he relates how just as at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came upon them and adds as he has come upon us at the beginning. Peter could openly and honestly answer his critics because he was following the clear commands of God. And we need to remember that as I said earlier, this clear command was at first something Peter really struggled to come to terms with. Verses 9 and 10 make that clear. But isn't it true, friends, that just like with his critics, and even Peter himself, and if we're open and honest with us, old habits and traditions are hard to let go of. They may not, in some cases, be bad. They may not be wrong. So some habits and some traditions, I think, are good. But here's the point. If they get in the way of presenting the gospel to whoever needs it, then just as Peter does here, and just as Jesus did with the woman at the well in John 4. Do you remember that story? The woman at the well that Jesus met? Then tradition must bow to conviction. Tradition must bow to conviction. Remember the story of Jesus in the well at John 4? Uh, John 4. Jesus is tired, shows his humanity. He's, he's journeyed, he's journeyed long and, and he sat down at the well. The disciples went off to find something to eat and Jesus is there alone and, and, and a woman comes to draw water, not just any woman but a Samaritan and a woman that had been living with at least six men and, 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 and Jews and Samaritans, they don't even talk to each other, much like this situation here. Yet a woman's need of a saviour overruled any tradition. And Jesus spoke with her. Much to her surprise. Maybe even from inner criticism from his disciples when they come back and wonder, what's he doing talking to her? Do you know the outcome of that story? Of course you do. The woman came to faith and then noised abroad in her village. I seen a man who told them how she'd done everything. And because of her testimony, many others in the village became believers. 
What if Jesus had stuck to tradition that day that says a Jewish man doesn't speak to a Samaritan woman? For Peter to allow his tradition to be overruled by the conviction that God laid upon him, the command that God gave him, was a no-brainer. If Peter had stuck strictly to his custom and strictly to his tradition and strictly to his habits, then Cornelius and all his house that day would not have heard the message of salvation and would not have come to know the forgiveness and the freedom and the peace that was theirs in Christ Jesus. And Peter openly, honestly, and with the assurance that he had been spirit-led, reported back as to the reasons that he met and ate with Gentiles. And it seems, doesn't it, as we read on, it seems that this approach had the right effect. And for now, I'll emphasize now, they had no further objections, although we'll see that the same issue raised its head again and a special council of Jerusalem had to be called to settle the issue once and for all and we'll get to that when we reach chapter 15. Peter's response here is so vital. This situation could so easily have caused a major division. Yet he goes to great lengths to explain and ultimately to get the backing, if you like, of the whole church. I've always believed that if we take a step forward, that if we reach out into something new, that it is well worth taking the time to explain in order that the whole church may be behind the decision, that any criticism, that any concerns, and, and whatever else can be openly and honestly address and the unity of the fellowship maintained. Does that mean we'll always agree? Probably not. But friends, when the saving of souls is at stake and when that is a priority as it must be, then yes, there are times that customs, traditions, and even if we're honest, preferences have to become secondary. For criticizing, there was a reporting. Finally, notice the outcome, hardly surprising, because we read of praising. Their criticism and their concerns have been alleviated. And when they heard the whole story, the whole story, when they got the full picture of how God was in it, of how God had led and directed Peter by the Spirit, their response, and it couldn't be anything else, was to praise God. You see, that was, that is, and that always should be our chief aim, to glorify God. We noted that last week from our text for the year where it ends, to him be glory. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. However, notice here, do you see the reason that 
this circumcised group turned from the criticizing to the praising because God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. That is, it is the salvation of the lost that they praise God for. That's why they're praising God. One of the many ways, one of the many means of praising God is when we hear, as happens here, of people coming to faith. That, that is why the testimony night a couple of Sundays ago was so encouraging. There's not much more that drives us to praise, or at least should, than when we see people saved, crossing from death to life, from darkness into light. And we should praise God for it. Jesus tells us that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So if the angels and if heaven rejoices, then so should we. Because salvation, being freed from our sins, being born again, having our sins wiped clean, however we want to define it, is the greatest and the neediest thing that can happen to any man, woman, boy, or girl. Paul says, I have become all things to all men that I might win some for Christ. That's what's happening here. Because what is at work here in this chapter and in the previous chapter, and in indeed in all of Acts, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ at work in all of its power. As the Holy Spirit takes hold of ordinary, feeble men and women, and he uses them as his instruments to go wherever he sends us, to go wherever he places us. And just as Peter did in that house of Cornelius that day to bring the message through which people will be saved. That is our task, brothers and sisters. And I emphasize our task together. May God so equip us, keeping us as one as we seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to go wherever he tells us and to tell of Jesus the mighty to save. So that others, others, and maybe even somebody here this morning may be granted repentance unto life.